thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi guys and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Stefan Guianet, author of The Hungry Brain. Stefan's on the show today to teach us all about outsmarting the instincts that make us overeat. Hi Stefan and thanks for joining the show. Hi Steph, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to delving into this topic today. So I understand your book The Hungry Brain has been released in the last couple of days. Obviously, this episode isn't live, but tell us about just your experience since the launch and how it's being received so far. So far, so good. So uh, there are a number of people who received the book even before launch day, just as review copies and things. So I've been getting feedback uh, for a while, and it's been overwhelmingly positive. I'm very, very pleased by the reception it's gotten. And um, last night I had my first book reading that was at Elliott Bay Book Company here in Seattle, which is a, a really neat bookstore here, really neat independent bookstore and got a nice crowd. They were very engaged and we had a good time. Yeah, amazing. So let's dive, um, I guess, backwards to set the scene a little bit more for our listeners that aren't familiar with your work. So can you give us a, you know, a bit of an elevator pitch as to what you do and what led you to writing The Hungry Brain? Yeah, sure. So I've always been fascinated by the brain and I've always also been interested in health and fitness and nutrition. And I went to graduate school for neurobiology and behavior at the University of Washington and during the course of my thesis work, I, I was studying neurodegenerative disease and I kind of um, decided by the end of that that I really wanted to meld my personal interest of health and fitness and eating behavior and body weight with my professional interests uh, on the brain. And so I started thinking about what's the intersection between the brain and health and nutrition, eating behavior, and body fatness. And it turns out that there's actually a very powerful connection. And if you think about it, it's actually quite obvious because mm. the brain is the organ that generates all of our behaviors, right? And eating is a behavior. So how much you eat, what you eat, how you use your body with physical activity, and even many of the physiological details that are happening in your body, those metabolic nuts and bolts that are determining how much energy is being burned and what type of energy is being burned, those things are all regulated by the brain. And so at the time when I was in graduate school, I didn't really know that much about it, but I was very interested in it. And I ended up getting a position also at the University of Washington as a postdoc with a researcher named Mike Schwartz. And Mike is a very well-established obesity researcher who studies obesity from the perspective of the brain, and particularly a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is the part of the brain that regulates body fatness. And 
this is a lot of people don't realize that the brain regulates body fatness, but it does. And this has been very well established now for something like 20 years. And I think that it has um, some very important implications for how we think about body fatness and eating behavior and health. Um, but basically, so I started writing about this on my blog and the writing got more and more traction. And eventually a friend of mine, Dan Party, suggested to me, why don't you write a book about this? And I'd been kind of tossing around the idea for a while casually, but uh, when he said that, it really gelled in my mind. And I thought, hey, you know, this is the right time and I've got the right idea. He's right. I should do this. And so that's what I did. And the premise of the book is that nobody wants to overeat and certainly nobody wants to do it for years and become overweight and per perhaps even develop chronic health condition. But here in the United States and in many other countries around the world, that's precisely what most people do. And so that's pretty perplexing, right? I mean, where's the disconnect between our, our healthy, positive goals for ourselves, for our weight and our health, and our actual behavior? It implies that there are these instinctive, impulsive circuits that are undermining our positive, constructive, healthy goals. And so the book is all about what are those circuits and how do they work and is there anything we can do about it? Yeah, I absolutely love that because as you say, I mean, it is obvious <laughs> because the brain has that overriding rule. But for so long, we in the nutrition space have been looking for things like, you know, counting calories or a certain dietary intervention. And I just wanted to read um, one of the quotes that you have on the back of the hungry brain that's um, from Chris Cresser, just to set the scene before we dive into more of the content about the book. So Chris writes, low carb, low fat, low calorie, it seems like every day there's a new claim about what causes weight gain and how to shed pounds. As a working clinician and educator of other clinicians, I rely on Stefan's ability to cut through the hype and present the latest scientific research in this area in an engaging and practical way. In a world of increasing information overload, Stefan's work is like a gem in the rough. And I love that because there is so much information and people are just confused. I'm sure that's your experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's a lot of information out there and, you know, most of it has some value, but uh, I would say that the, the quality of it varies and there's definitely a lot of confusion out there. Yeah, for sure. So I love that you've gone and obviously looked at this, the science and I guess significantly helped to dispel the myths that we've been subject to over the last 50 years. So let's talk more about um, the connection between types of food and how that regulates or how that's interpreted by the hypothalamus. Could you go through the macronutrients in more detail? Yeah, sure. Um so I'm going to I'm going to answer the question more from the perspective not of the hypothalamus okay. but of the the ventral striatum um if that's all right. Sure. So basically the you know there there's kind of a fundamental question here and that is what motivates us to seek food in general or what motivates us to seek specific types of food and um, the answer is that we have sensors in our digestive tract 
including in our mouth, but especially in our small intestine. And those things collect information about the food we eat and it sends it back up to our brain. And our brain is kind of looking for certain things in that food. There's certain things that the brain is intrinsically motivated by certain food properties. And those include calorie density and fat, uh, sugar, starch, and protein. And so when it detects those food properties, you get dopamine spiking in the brain. And dopamine is a chemical, it's uh, a chemical that reinforces behavior. And so it causes you to come to be motivated by the properties of that food that you just ate. So like if I ate a slice of pizza, for example, my brain gets the message that there was this awesome source of calories and fat that I just ate and it spikes dopamine and then that makes me responsive. The next time I encounter pizza, it makes me responsive to the cues such as the smell and the sight and even the location and the situation of of eating that pizza. And when I see those cues, it triggers my motivation. It triggers a craving for me to go through with it and eat that pizza or the brownies or the chocolate or the fries or whatever it is. And um, so so essentially the macronutrients are all impacting on that same motivational system that drives us toward food. Yeah, but obviously in different levels, you know, like you're more attracted to eat certain foods because of the degree of, you know, carbohydrates or sugar or fat versus, you know, you don't crave what would be considered a healthy food. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So um, the level of motivation that you experience is in large part determined by the concentration of those substances in the food that your brain is looking for. And so, for example, um, one example I like to use is chocolate. So chocolate is the most commonly craved food among women, and it's very commonly craved among men as well. And the reason is that, first of all, it's a very concentrated source of fat and sugar. And so that, uh, that ramps up the brain's motivational systems. But it also contains a habit-forming drug called theobromine. And theobromine works in the same biological pathway as dopamine. And so it gives, gives that little extra dopamine kick that makes us crave it very strongly. But I think, um, I guess... You can see the effects of this in other foods, like the difference between eating um, the difference between eating a very concentrated source of calories and a, a source that's not very concentrated. So, a an apple, for example, is very different than eating a piece of candy. And an apple is something that is satisfying, but you're not necessarily going to crave it in the same way that you might crave candy and you're not necessarily going to overeat it in the same way that you're going to overeat candy. And that's because the higher concentration of those food properties that your brain is looking for causes, it stimulates your motivation to a greater degree. And so that's going to apply to things like deep fried foods or um, chocolate, candy, um, baked goods are particularly strong offenders um, and those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting how it does always come back to hormones as well, whereas, you know, that's not been something that we've looked at in the, in the old calorie fallacy. 
Yeah. So I think I think there's a lot of um, confusion in this realm as well because the the primary and I think a lot of people don't realize this, but the primary hormone that regulates body fatness is a hormone called leptin. Mm. And this is a hormone that is produced by fat mass in response to its size. And so the more fat you have, the more leptin is produced. And leptin travels through the bloodstream and goes to the brain. And the brain uses the level of leptin in the bloodstream to measure the size of body fat stores. And the brain is very, very sensitive to this signal. And when body fat levels start to decline, the brain says, hey, I really don't like what's happening right now. And it initiates a starvation response. And so that makes it very difficult to lose weight once a person uh, has become overweight or obese, because basically your new weight becomes the new normal to your brain, and then your brain doesn't like it when you lose. And we know that that's caused by the, the, the leptin signal going down, because when you replace that leptin, just bring it back up to the level that the person was at before they lost weight, you don't experience that starvation response. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? So what do we do to control leptin or to have it work into our advantage? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, that, that's a tough one. And, mm. you know, I, I don't want to present this as if I have a magic bullet or a magic switch that's going to, you know, make everything work perfectly again. You'd probably um, have a Nobel Prize if you had that. Magic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to be realistic about what I'm saying, but at the same time, there are ways that we can impact the system in a, in a positive, healthy way that makes your brain comfortable, more comfortable with a lower level of body fatness. And so in the scientific literature, there are some strategies that have been identified that appear to impact those brain circuits that regulate body fatness in a way that makes them more comfortable with a, a lower level of body fatness. And I'll just go through a few of those. One of them is the uh, reward value of food. So that's the, the seductiveness of food. So foods that are really, really seductive to the brain, things like French fries and uh, and brownies and cookies and candy and cake and that sort of thing. Those are things that not only cause us to kind of passively overeat them and eat too many calories, but they actually seem to affect what level of body fat the brain actually wants to hold on to. And so if you're eating simpler, whole, unrefined, natural foods, your brain is going to be more likely to be comfortable at a lower level of body fatness. And that really helps to, to lose fat and to maintain that loss. Because the thing is, I mean, you can, you can fight your brain. You can fight your brain every day and you can fight through hunger and you can fight through sluggishness and cravings. But it's hard. It's really hard to do that day after day. And most people can't do it in the long run. And so... I think a much better way is to try to get all of those instinctive drives to align with the goal that you're trying to accomplish. So you're not fighting yourself at that point, you're cooperating with yourself. And that's kind of what, that's tr where I'm trying to get here. So one way is to eat simple whole foods 
things that are satisfying but that are not extremely seductive. Um, another way is to get regular physical activity that seems to maintain, I mean, physical activity burns calories. So that's one thing about it. It also improves health in many ways. But another thing it does is it seems to help maintain these brain circuits that regulate body fatness and make them comfortable at a lower level. Another thing you can do is eat a higher protein diet. So protein the amino acids from protein seem to feed back on the same brain system and allow you to um, feel more comfortable at a lower body weight. So control your appetite and sustain your metabolic rate and kind of control all of these um, outputs of this starvation response that your brain creates that can make it so difficult to lose fat and maintain that loss. And then a couple of things um, – also to think about are sleep and stress. So insufficient sleep and, uh, and excessive stress, particularly stress that feels uncontrolled, uncontrollable, things that you feel like you don't have a handle on, um, those things can impact those same circuits and drive your brain to defend a higher level of fat and conversely managing them correctly, getting restored restorative sleep and uh, managing your stress constructively can kind of nudge your brain to defend a lower level of, of body fatness comfortably. Yeah, fascinating, you know, points and apologies for sounding quite blunt, but do you really think it's as simple as eating more protein, exercising, sleeping and controlling your stress? Or do you think that we're perhaps missing a key piece of the puzzle? Well, I don't want to portray it as simple, mm. um, and I don't want to portray it as easy either. I think that there's no strategy that has been clearly identified by science that reverses obesity. You know, I want to be very clear about that. Any claim that you hear from anybody that they have the cure for obesity is baloney. Mm. So, you know, I don't want to say that what I'm that what I'm relating here is the cure. All I'm saying is that these are things that can help. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So what about when it comes to low-carbohydrate diets? You know, often it, we see, um, or at least in more modern times, we see them being used for fat loss um, where insulin is often discussed in terms of that primary role to allow for fat burning or at least to prevent storage. Um, what what does the science say there in relation to, say, people that are overweight or obese but still don't get results from a low-carbohydrate diet? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the insulin idea provides a very um, kind of like, I guess, uh, it's a very simple explanation mm. for what's going on. And I think a lot of people find it very satisfying, but it's actually pretty hard to reconcile with what we've observed as in the research world of what's actually going on during weight loss. Um, and so I think the insulin model, I think ins insulin is not what makes us fat. It's possible that it plays some role in the response to low carb diets, although there's really not much evidence that it does beyond speculation. 
Um, but I think that different people respond differently to uh, weight loss and different people respond differently to specific diets. And I don't think we really understand exactly why that happens. Mm. You know, if you if you look at diet studies, some people uh, lose weight really well and other people's other people don't lose weight. Some people even gain weight. So and this is true whether you look at low fat diet studies or low carb studies, you're going to see that there's variability in the response. And there's even a few unlucky folks who gain weight despite being on this, you know, weight loss diet um, on any almost any diet that you look at. And so um, I think that there's a lot of variability that we don't understand. And there are researchers that are trying to figure it out. And there are some researchers who are who are saying, hey, when we when we divide people up by their baseline metabolic state. So, for example, if we divide people into people who are insulin resistant versus people who aren't, how do they do on different types of diets? And there's been some preliminary evidence that people who are more insulin resistant tend to do better on low carb diets. People who are more insulin sensitive tend to do better on low fat diets. But it hasn't really been confirmed in the the best studies to date, haven't really supported that. And so there's, in particular, there was one by Chris Gardner recently um, that is the best test of that hypothesis to date, and it really didn't really didn't confirm it. And so, I think um, we don't really know why yeah. people do better on certain diets than others. But I think that it is a fact that some people do better on some diets than others, and I think that it calls for a certain amount of personal experimentation. And I think. I think it's really important to allow yourself the possibility that maybe the diet that you think is going to work is not going to be the best one for you and experiment and just see what works because it's kind of hard to predict sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And obviously those studies that, or at least the one you mentioned and the other researchers that are currently working in this space, you know, they're going to be working with a very different, group of individuals so getting one answer is unlikely to be that result so I wanted just to stay on low carb for a minute because I know you have a whole chapter about satiety in the hungry brain um Mm -hmm. and obviously one of the biggest um benefits that someone starting a low carbohydrate approach will experience is that satiety factor you know for the first time in their life they're able to feel full from a meal and have that that blood sugar control. Tell us about your thoughts in regards to that. Um, perhaps if you go back to relating that to the hypothalamus or uh, where the connection is for um, decreasing over fatness. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think low carbohydrate diets are a pretty interesting phenomenon. I mean, and I have to say that it's, it's interesting in a couple of different ways. One of them is that there was this idea for a long time, you know, decades that fat was, you know, dietary fat was the main driver of obesity. And if you cut back on fat, that's the best way to lose body fat. And I think we've pretty solidly rejected that idea at this point. And I think that that is a serious medical reversal. That is to say something that we thought was true, that is 
now known to not be true. So that's one thing that's interesting about it. And I think the low carb diet studies have demonstrated that pretty convincingly at this point. Um, another interesting thing is that when you, when people go on a low carbohydrate diet, what you see is this dampening of calorie intake. Like, as you said, it helps control your appetite in, in most people, it helps mm -hmm. control the appetite and you see that calorie intake spontaneously declines without people having to force themselves to eat fewer calories by, you know, counting and restricting in it. I think that's a major reason why the low carbohydrate diet is so popular is it allows people to have a more comfortable relationship with food. Because I mean, the, the way that we interact with food naturally is not to count it up on a spreadsheet and count up how many calories we're burning and then figure out what the balance is and whether we need to eat more or less. You know, that's, that's not how humans have ever managed their calorie intake. We've, the way that we do it is by a more intuitive process where we eat when we feel hungry or tempted and we stop when we've had enough. And that's, that's a, just a very intuitive process. And I think the ideal place we want to get to is where that intuitive process is accurately managing your calorie needs to a healthy level. And um, so that's pretty interesting that we see that low carbohydrate dieting is one of the approaches that can help favor that state. And my personal belief, after having looked at that research and a variety of other research, is that it probably helps to dampen that starvation response, that same one that I was talking about, where normally when you lose weight, your brain says, hey, I don't like this, and I'm going to try to get the fat back, and I'm going to make you hungry, and I'm <laughs> going to make you cold, and I'm going to make you sluggish, and I'm going to make you really tempted by ice cream and chocolate and all these things. Um, and I think low-carbohydrate eating helps to oppose all of those elements of the starvation response. And um, and then that brings us to the question of why that happens. And, you know, we don't really have great answers to this yet, or I, sh I should say we don't have complete answers to this, but I think one of the ways that it can happen, and this is particularly relevant for moderate low carbohydrate diets, not necessarily very low carbohydrate ketogenic diets, but in moderate low carbohydrate diets, you generally see an increase in the amount of protein in the diet. And protein is one of these things that can feed back on the brain and dampen that starvation response. And there have actually been some interesting studies done on this where researchers put people on high protein, low carbohydrate diets versus lower protein, lower carbohydrate diets. And, and then they compare them to groups that were on high protein, low fat diets versus low, lower protein, low fat diets. And what they found was that it was actually the protein and not the level of carbohydrate that determined the fat loss and the reduction in calorie intake. And so I, I don't think those studies are, I, I want to say that I don't, I'm not a hundred percent convinced by those studies. I think they, um, the methods were not uh, 100% convincing, but they do provide at least some evidence that that protein is playing a very important role. 
And I think the other thing is that, so I talked about those motivational circuits in the brain earlier, those circuits that are looking for certain food properties like uh, starch and sugar and fat and protein. And essentially when you cut out or restrict a whole big chunk of those things that the brain is looking for, you're going to reduce the brain's overall level of food motivation. And I think that it probably plays a role in what we see in terms of people being able to control their appetite better on low-carbohydrate diets. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for clarifying that. I wanted mm-hmm. to talk more, and you may have answered this question in what we've already discussed, but just to sort of be quite clear, I, I, I like to, or I'd like to explore more of the unconscious um, behavioral side of things because people, you know, I guess people are probably more interested in that timeline. Like say if you go from eating some of the foods that you mentioned, like whether it is the fries or the the brownies. Um, what are your thoughts on the timeline to no longer needing those foods? You know, some people move into like a real food, maybe they're doing low carb with moderate protein, but they feel like they never stop wanting those foods and they have to really, really always quite, I guess, use a lot of willpower not to give in per se. What's the underlying mechanism there for someone like that versus someone else who's just not interested in those sorts of foods anymore? Yeah. So it so this comes back to that system in the brain that determines our food motivations mm. um at, at least at least to a large extent. Um and so cravings are food motivations. They're food motivations that are directed toward a specific food and they're determined by the same system in the brain via release of dopamine that I was talking about earlier. Mm. And essentially, the the way that works, so you build up this association in your brain, this, this reward association that uh, causes you to be motivated by certain triggers in your environment. And that association is maintained particularly strongly if you continue to eat those foods. But if you don't continue to eat those foods at all, like if you just completely give them up, the strength of that association will diminish over time generally what is what, sort of is a what you see. Line? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm. And, you know, I honestly don't have any really good basis for giving any specific numbers. Yeah. Um, but I think – we're talking on the order of, you know, at least months and possibly years. Yeah, I find that really interesting and I'm sure everyone's different again. So I'm definitely not expecting one answer. But, yeah, it's definitely a function of what you do and don't eat. But I also see quite a lot of emotional differences in people. You know, they might have started at the same time, like so they've moved into a real food template um, and, you know, some are immediately disinterested in the foods they used to eat and others will really, really fight that uphill battle for a much longer time, if not, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, there are, I, I talk about in my book, there are a lot of individual differences between people and how we respond to foods. And um, these relate to 
certain differences in the brain that I talk about in my book. So, for example, some people have a much higher level of motivation for tempting calorie-dense foods than other people have, just kind of intrinsically. And if you measure the level of food motivation for, for these tempting treats, and th this is independent of hunger, by the way, you, you get people to the same level of hunger, and what you'll find is that the people who have a higher level of motivation for these tempting, tasty treats, like candy, are going to be the people who gain weight over the coming years. And the people who don't have a high level of motivation will not gain weight. Mm. And so there, um, there are differences in how our brains are constructed based in part on genetics and in part on our life experiences that really are um, probably occur very early in life, you know, in childhood or even in infancy. These things are already there and already guiding our behaviors. And those things make it easier or more difficult to adhere to diets that restrict the things that your brain intuitively craves. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We're obviously a byproduct of our environment and you know, those foods are very drug-like in nature, so there can be that long-term addiction that takes you know, much time and, and willpower to reverse. Yeah. And I mean, I don't use the term addiction lightly because mm. I think, you know, that it has a specific definition um, that, you know, has specific criteria in medicine and psychology. But the truth is that there are people who really are addicted to food by those medical and psychological criteria. And it's really not that uncommon. Um, I think the first study that was done, on, and by the way, it's still a bit controversial. Some people don't even want to use the word addiction with food. Um, I feel pretty comfortable using it. But um, yeah, the first study that was ever done on this found that I think 11% of their population that they studied met criteria for food addiction. So, I mean, whether or not you call it addiction, there's definitely a, a level of very high motivation that many of us, probably most of us have that drives us to eat more and eat more unhealthy foods than we really should. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Fascinating. Last little subtopic I wanted to cover with you was, um, about one of the chapter, one of the early chapters in the hungry brain titled the fattest man on the island. Can you share that story like briefly, um, but also your thoughts on how that relates to, say, the evolutionary perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So I open chapter one with a description of a man who I call Utala. And this is a man who was examined by a researcher named Stefan Lindbergh. And uh, Stefan Lindbergh traveled to this island called Catava, which is a Melanesian island near Papua New Guinea, in the 1990s to study this uh, population on this island called Catava that had scarcely been touched by industrialization. So these people were living a non-industrialized lifestyle. They were growing their own food, so they were eating 
lots of seafood. Um, they were eating taro and plantains and they were eating breadfruit and fruit and coconuts. And so just a lot of natural foods that they were growing themselves. They didn't have any processed food and, um, they in general were very lean and healthy, but there was this one man who was an exception, this man named, uh, who I call Utala in my book. And he was the fattest man on the island. He was fattest man by a long shot. He was 50 pounds heavier than the average Katavan man. And so I kind of opened the chapter with this, this mystery story of why Utala is so fat while everyone else is so lean. And the answer is that Utala wasn't actually living on Katava at the time of Lindbergh's visit. He was only visiting. So he actually lived on Papua New Guinea where he had moved to become a businessman in a small uh, city. And so basically what had happened is that this man from who came from a very non-industrialized, traditionally living setting and then went to a more industrialized setting and changed his diet and changed his lifestyle became very much like most of us are today, which is to say overweight and he had high blood pressure and he had uh, too much abdominal fat and he was clearly a lot less healthy than everybody else on the island. And so that's an example of, um, I guess I use it as an example of the changes that occur with industrialization mm -hmm. all over the globe. So this happened in the United States, it happened in Australia, it happened in practically every industrialized country where you have people living a traditional lifestyle. And, and I want to be clear that p traditionally living people have their own problems. You know, they have infectious diseases, they have accidents, they have warfare and homicide, all those things a lot more than we have today. But what they weren't experiencing was obesity and non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and those sorts of things that are the main things that we worry about today and the things that we really don't, the things that we'd really like to avoid. And so um, I think that really serves as an example of what, what is potentially available to us if we have the right diet and the right lifestyle and also how our current diets and lifestyles have driven us away from that state of uh, leanness and metabolic health. Yeah, and don't you think this highlights the significance of genetics in the obesity equation? Because, you know, if we look at the, the on the other side of the equation, you know, people always use the argument that the Chinese and Japanese cultures are quite lean and they eat a lot of rice. So that's a high carbohydrate diet. Yet other cultures that follow high carbohydrate diets end up with, you know, the highest obesity rates. So do you think that's quite similar from that evolutionary perspective in terms of what we have always eaten and how far we deviate from that? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm not quite understanding the question. Can you please restate it? So with the example that you gave with um, the fattest man on the island, he obviously moved away and started eating very different foods. Um, mm -hmm. And I sort of compared that to say like the genetic influence 
you know, if we look at the Chinese and Japanese cultures, they eat a high-carbohydrate diet and they're often quite lean. But do you mm-hmm. think that's because their genetics are more suited to that? Mm. Um, I think probably not. I think I think genetics definitely plays a role in the response to diet, but you see... You see all around the world, people are switching from high-carbohydrate diets to an industrialized diet. People are switching from higher-fat diets to an industrialized diet, and it always has the same effect. So I don't think the carbohydrate or the fat per se is really the problem. I think the problem is that you have this whole suite of things that's happening together. You have these very calorie-dense, refined um tempting foods that are all occurring at the same time that don't have the same nutritional qualities, they don't have the same calorie density, and they don't require the same level of physical activity energy expenditure that our ancestors would have experienced. And so I don't really think it's about the carbohydrates per se. Yeah, interesting. Okay, but obviously the genetics still plays a role because I think when the food world just looked at calories in, calories out, Anyone that mentioned the word genetics was seen to be making excuse for their overfatness. Well, yeah, genetics play an enormous role. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. And who becomes overweight and who doesn't. So there have been a number of studies on this. And um, in a country like the United States or Australia, genetics explains about 70% of the differences in body weight between individuals. And then environment explains about 30%. So it's huge. I mean, genetics really literally is the main reason why some people are obese and some people are not in affluent nations. And that doesn't mean, you know, I just want to preempt because a lot of times people hear that and they say, well, that how can that be? Because our ancestors were so much leaner and they had the same genes. So how, and, and I know that you know, when I change my diet and lifestyle, it can affect my weight. So how could genetics be so important? And the reason is that it, it really doesn't, the implication is not that environment is not important and not that environment is not very important. It's um, those genetic studies really apply in the specific cultural context in which they were conducted. And so in a society like the United States, for example, where I live, you have a fairly homogenous culture. So everybody here is steeped in the same, you know, environment of easy access to unhealthy foods. We're all in the same environment where we don't really have to do any physical work in our day-to-day lives. We can get into our cars and, and you know, go to the office, at least most of us. Um, and so in the context of that, um, homogenous environment, since there's not very many differences in environment between people, that means that environment is not really accounting for much of the differences and genetics is, is dominant. But if you were to compare like Americans to rural people in Kenya living in a very different way, you would find that environmental differences are actually the main driver of body weight and genetics probably don't make that much of a difference. So I guess to, to make a short story long, um, we have, um, in the United States and Australia and in affluent nations, 
if you go with the flow, if you're just eating the same way everybody else eats and living the same way everybody else lives, it's likely that genetics is going to be the primary thing that's driving your body weight. If you want that not to be the case, if you want to have more control over your body weight than just your genetics determining it, then you need to construct a diet and lifestyle for yourself that are substantially different than what most people in your environment are doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Such a fascinating topic. I'd love um, for you to finish with any final thoughts and then to direct our listeners as uh, where your online home is and where they can find out more about The Hungry Brain. Yeah, so um, in terms of final thoughts, I think that you know one thing that I like to often say is that one very compo- very important component of guiding your eating behavior and body weight in the right direction is to control your food environment. So since our brains are very reactive to the cues that surround us, if you create a food environment where the cues that are around you are from things that you want to eat, things that are supporting your healthy goals and your body weight regulation goals, then that's going to help you. Um, that's going to help you do what you want to do and help you do it painlessly, as opposed to you know having chips on the counter or having soda on the counter or even having things in the freezer that your brain knows are there, and you have to fight yourself to not go in and eat those things. So, controlling your food environment, I think, is a very very important aspect of um, eating in a healthy and slimming way. Yeah, for sure. And what about your online home? Have you got a blog you could share with us? Yeah, yeah. So my website is stephanguyenne.com. So that's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T.com. And my book is called The Hungry Brain. came out two days ago, and I'm very excited about it. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your story and certainly the research about the hungry brain. Um, All of our listeners can head to the show notes to get their hands on a copy. Um, And we're really grateful to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.